On the evening of June 18, 1954, 480 thugs, mercenaries, and U.S. intelligence men gathered in the steaming jungles of Honduras and El Salvador, ready to strike northward into Guatemala. At 8.20 p.m., their commander, a man named Carlos Castillo Armas, rolled across the frontier in a station wagon, his improvised command car. Overhead, CIA warplanes would go on to bomb and leaflet cities across the country. This was the beginning of a coup, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters, and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. The chain of events that led to that invasion in June 1954 began 10 years earlier in the spring of 1944, during the last months of the reign of the dictator Ubico. Jorge Ubico was the last in a series of long-ruling strongmen who had governed Guatemala since 1898. Their main concern over the intervening 46 years was to preserve the stability between the three elements of Guatemalan society, which were the landed aristocracy, the military, and the Mayan peasantry, which made up the majority of the population. The landed elites were known as finqueros, because the Guatemalan word for the massive estates from which they drew their wealth was finca. They have fincas, they're finqueros. The finqueros were pure-blooded Spanish or lightly mixed-race Ladinos, and they had dominated Guatemalan society since the 16th century. These guys derived their wealth and power from their land, and they had a lot of land. 2% of Guatemalans, the finquero population in 1944, owned 72% of all the land in the country. And in that same year, fincas larger than 1,100 acres, which made up only 0.3% of all farms, contained more than half of all of the arable land in Guatemala. Now, I know those last two sentences sounded like part of a Bernie Sanders speech, but the difference in wealth and power between finqueros and the rest of the Guatemalan population is unimaginable to us here in America. This is like 100 families owning the entire Louisiana Purchase. It's an insane amount of land. Fincas in Guatemala worked something like plantations did in the American South after Reconstruction, during the era of Jim Crow. The main cash crop for finqueros in the 20th century was coffee, which needed a large supply of cheap labor to be farmed. And that labor came from the Mayan Indian population, who either ended up as sharecroppers when the fincas stole their village land, or as wage laborers, paid as little as five cents a day and living in conditions of virtual slavery, starved and beaten by white or Ladino taskmasters. Now, enforcing the finquero dominance of the Indian population was the military. 
1944, the Guatemalan armed forces only had about 6,000 men, which sounds small, but Guatemala is a small country, and you're going to have to kind of change your perception of small numbers for this episode. And of those 6,000 men, 800 were officers, all drawn from the Finquero class, and the rest were Mayan peasants, who served in more or less the same conditions as on the plantations. Shoeless, clothed in rags, loaded over by Finqueros, and subject to submarine punishment. The Mayan peasantry that made up the third part of the societal structure was spread out over all of Guatemala. The lucky few had small subsistence plots in the jungle or in the highlands, and the rest tended to live as sharecroppers or seasonal laborers on the fincas. 90% of the peasantry was illiterate, and most lived in conditions that had only gotten worse since independence. The two dictators before 1930 hadn't had too much trouble keeping those three sectors in balance, but after the Great Depression, coffee prices collapsed worldwide, and so did the wages and livelihood of everyone in Guatemala who wasn't a finquero. Fearing an uprising, the finqueros turned to a particularly brutal provincial governor named Jorge Ubico to preserve the structure of their society. Ubico replaced governors with military men, created a secret police force modeled on the Gestapo, massacred protesters, and created new Indian laws to secure labor for the finqueros. One of them required all Indians to render 150 days of labor service to either the state or the vinqueros in lieu of taxes. 150 days is a lot of time, especially if you're called to work during planting or harvest and you have your own land to tend. Another allowed finqueros to execute troublesome Indians on their fincas if they deemed it necessary. And needless to say, Ubico and the Guatemalan army enforced those new laws diligently. Now in 1944, before the protests that would bring down Ubico began, there was only one relatively new force at work in Guatemalan society, and that was the United Fruit Company. I'm Chiquita Banana and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you From the late 19th century through the 1960s, the United Fruit Company was a major player in the Caribbean, and it's going to be very important in a story about Guatemala. United Fruit, or the UFCO, got its start in 1870, when Captain Lorenzo Baker of Massachusetts became what was apparently the first man to think that Americans might like to eat bananas. He started delivering boatloads of bananas to Boston, and he founded what would become United Fruit in 1885, and expanded his banana-buying operations to Cuba and Santo Domingo. By 1900, Baker's company was buying every spare banana in the Caribbean and still couldn't meet demand, so the company started buying land and developing plantations. Within a few years, the UFCO had major holdings not just on those three islands, but in Panama, Nicaragua, Honduras, Colombia, and Guatemala. Either by taking advantage of coups or by creating its own, the company insinuated itself into all parts of these nations' economies, and the people of the region started calling it El Pulpo, the octopus. In Guatemala, by 1944, the UFCO controlled the electric utility, the telegraph, and the delivery of all mail from abroad. It operated both Guatemala's only major port, Puerto Barrios on the east coast, and the only railway that connected that port to the capital, Guatemala City. Again, this might be hard to conceptualize in terms of the United States, but imagine Chiquita Banana owning the cities of New York, Baltimore, Charleston, Washington, D.C., your cell provider, your ISP, your cable company, and all of the roads you use. Appreciating the company's assistance in helping him control the population, Ubico granted cheap long-term leases of fertile lowland to the company and charged it no taxes or import fees. The company asked him for and received permission to pay their workers an ultra-low rural wage. He also gave the UFCO a free hand on its plantations. 
Most of the company's overseers were imported from the American Deep South, and they used their free hand to impose strict racial hierarchies on company land. Something like 40,000 Guatemalans were employed either directly or indirectly by the UFCO. United Fruit was a major supporter of the Ubiga regime, and popular resentment of the company helped to bring resistance to the dictator to a head in the spring of 1944. Opposition to Ubico manifested itself in Guatemala's small but growing middle class of teachers, urban shopkeepers, and factory laborers, a segment of society that had never had a prominent role in the country between the domineering aristocracy, the military, and the mass of the rural peasantry. But starting in May 1944 and growing through June, teachers, students, merchants, and labor began to mount large, organized protests for the first time in Guatemalan history. The two guys who wrote Bitter Fruit, which is one of the books I'm using, Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer, think that there are a few different reasons that Guatemalan civil society rose up when it did. FDR had been broadcasting both the benefits of the New Deal and the idea of his four freedoms, that is, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom from want and from fear, all over the world during the war years, and Guatemalans had been listening. At the same time, the Mexican Revolution had finally straightened itself out under Lázaro Cárdenas, who was instituting a slate of wide-ranging social reforms right across the border. And third, the United States had begun to withdraw its support for the Ubica regime, which had largely taken the form of cash and training for the Guatemalan military. It was doing that both because Ubica wasn't following U.S. instructions as closely as the government would have wanted, but also because military support for dictatorial regimes was becoming indefensible under FDR's good neighbor policy. Now, the good neighbor policy was a follow-up on the Monroe Doctrine, and it promised that the United States would respect the sovereignty and internal affairs of its American neighbors in a way that it had not done in the past. Remember the good neighbor policy when we get 10 years down the line. So as all these forces come together, Guatemalan teachers decide as a body that they will not march in the Teacher's Day Parade in Guatemala City on June 30, 1944. It's hard to explain why that's such a big gesture without going on another very long tangent, so just believe me that it was a big deal. Big enough that just the announcement of the boycott touched off a series of rallies before Teacher's Day which snowballed into a massive demonstration in the main square of the capital in front of the presidential palace. A short aside, uh, the central square of a Hispanic capital is the heart of that nation in a way that the street in front of the White House or the lawn behind the capital will just never be for us. And when you fill that national space with protesters, it becomes serious business. Ubico must have agreed with that assessment because he sent a troop of cavalry into the crowd and massacred 200 of the people assembled there. In response, a coalition of 311 of the most prominent non-aristocratic Guatemalan citizens wrote and presented a letter to Ubico demanding his resignation. To the surprise of just about everyone in the country, including himself, Jorge Ubico stepped down on July 1st and handed the government over to one of his supporters, General Federico Ponce. Ponce instituted a number of mild reforms to raise the wages of the middle class and hopefully to defuse its political angst, but the revolutionary cat was already out of the bag, and everyone but Ponce and his administration could see that the situation in Guatemala was only going to go one way. Trying to hold on despite the country's instability and looking to shore up his position, Ponce then announced that he would hold elections to ratify his presidency. The teachers look around for an absolutely unimpeachable candidate, and they find one in Dr. Juan José Arevalo, a Guatemalan professor who was teaching philosophy in exile at an Argentinian university at the time. They got in touch, flew him back to Guatemala, and promised to fund his campaign. As soon as he got to the country, Ponce ordered his arrest, and Arevalo spent much of what would have been the campaign season in hiding. 
The arrest order didn't matter much in the end, though, because on the 20th of October 1944, two Guatemalan officers, Major Francisco Arana and Captain Jacobo Arbenz, launched an insurrection from a military barracks in Guatemala City. They distributed arms to students and co-conspirators and toppled Ponce's government in two days with fewer than 100 casualties. Arbenz and Arana, along with a businessman named Jorge Torriello, formed a junta and started putting the country, as far as they could see it, on track. They set the Guatemalan Bar Association to work designing a new constitution, instituted a number of immediate reforms, and held a more legitimate election in which Juan José Arevalo emerged as the only viable candidate. Of the reforms taking place before Arevalo's election, social commentator Mario Rosenthal wrote in 1962 that the new government abolished laws, exiled enemies, and cleaned house. A clean sweep was made of government employees. A hated secret police was dissolved and replaced by a civil guard. Former President Ubico and his friends were sent packing. Not a general was left in the country. In the months between October 20th, 1944 and March 15, 1945, fewer days were spent in constructing the new system than years had been spent building the old." End quote. Speaking about the Constitution, Kinzer and Schlesinger, the two guys who wrote Bitter Fruit, they described the new document like this. One remarkable feature was its commitment to a fair, honest political system, a novelty in Central America. Congressmen were limited to two four-year terms. The president could not be re-elected after a single six-year term, and military men were forbidden to run for office. All soldiers were required to pledge loyalty not only to the nation, but also to the principle of democracy and the idea of rotation in office. Censorship of the press was forbidden. The right to organize was sanctified, and voting rights were expanded. Congress was given the right to fire cabinet ministers or Supreme Court justices through a vote of non-confidence, and other provisions also limited the power of the president. Mayors and local councilors were to be elected for the first time, and all high officials were required to file net worth statements at the time they took office so that the public could later judge whether they had profited from government service. Just as noble were the Constitution's social guarantees. Equal pay for men and women was required in private as well as public employment, and husbands and wives were declared equal before the law. Racial discrimination was made a crime. The Constitution banned private monopolies and gave the government the power to expropriate certain private property. The country's main university, San Carlos, was guaranteed complete autonomy from government control. Workers were assured one day off during a maximum 40-hour work week, and contributory Social Security was made mandatory. Employers were to pay workers in legal currency rather than company scrip, grant paid leaves for childbirth, and permit union organization. End quote. That's a constitution that's liberal even by today's standards in the United States, and it's what went into effect in the winter of 1944 in Guatemala. Juan José Arevalo was elected in a landslide with more than 85% of the vote, and he was inaugurated on the 15th of March in 1945, which began a period that in Guatemala is known as the Ten Years of Spring. Arevalo's inaugural address set the tone for what would turn out to be slightly less than 10 years of democratic reform, saying that there has been in the past a fundamental lack of sympathy for the working man, and the faintest cry for justice was avoided and punished as if one were trying to eradicate the beginnings of a frightful epidemic. Now we are going to begin a period of sympathy for the man who works in the fields, in the shops, on the military bases, in small businesses. We are going to make men equal to men. We are going to divest ourselves of the guilty fear of generous ideas. We are going to add justice and humanity to order, because order is based on injustice and humiliation is good for nothing. We are going to give civil and legal value to all people who live in this republic." End quote. The new president's initial agenda was to deliver on the promise of the middle-class protests that brought down Ubico and Ponce, and which put him into office, and he focused on their concerns. Arevalo pushed through pioneering educational and economic reforms, along with token agricultural land distribution, but nothing compared to what would go on under his successor. The protest organizations that brought Arevalo to power coalesced into the Partido de Acción Revolucionaria, the Revolutionary Action Party, or PAR, and dominated most of the posts in his government. 
Labor unions and rural workers' collectives, now legal, sprung up all over the country and started aggressively organizing, in many or even most cases, against the United Fruit Company. At the end of Arevalo's term, urban wages had risen by more than 80%, partly through lifting the controls that Obico had put into place and partly through union action. The national education system had exploded in scope, and Arevalo had more books printed and imported during his term than in the previous 50 years. In 1950, though, the rural situation was still poor. While wages had risen, the average per capita annual income of a rural laborer was $87, or 24 cents a day, pitiful even by 1950 standards. Land ownership had not changed, with 2.2% of all Guatemalans holding onto more than 70% of all farmable land. Adding insult to iniquity, less than one quarter of that land was actually under cultivation at any one time. Large landholders maintained that they needed the extra land so that they could change their output to match supply year by year, and to plant new coffee or banana crops in the event of plague or infestation. This in a country with a massive class of landless poor. And despite Arevalo's attempts to jumpstart cottage industry, the largest part of the Guatemalan economy, some $134 million worth of investment, still belonged to foreign firms. Primarily, you guessed it, United Fruit. While Arevalo didn't manage to make any sweeping changes to the unjust structure of Guatemalan society, Schlesinger and Kinzer credit him with just as hard a job, preserving democracy in the first place. Armed revolutions have a poor track record of stable, short-term outcomes, and Guatemala was for a while a happy exception to that rule. It was no mean feat, either. Arevalo had his fair share of anti-democratic elements at home. The first, and there from the beginning, was Major Jose Arana, one of the two officers who overthrew General Ponce and served on the junta that oversaw Arevalo's election. Arevalo had appointed him chief of staff of the armed forces and his co-conspirator Jacobo Arbenz as the minister of defense. But while Arbenz seemed happy to serve, Arana began angling for more power immediately. He used his popularity with the military to bully the sitting president, and by 1949 began to try ruling almost in earnest. Arevalo complained, In Guatemala, there are two presidents, and one of them has a machine gun with which he is always threatening the other. End quote. In July of that year, Arana decided to push things further and handed Arevalo an ultimatum demanding that he surrender power and serve as the figurehead of an Aranista military regime. Arevalo stalled for time by promising Arana that he would support him in the upcoming election. And on July 18th, as Arana was coming back from a military inspection, a group of armed men stopped him on a bridge outside the capital. Now, no one still living knows what happened up there, but everyone I've read has the same general impression of events. Probably, but not definitely acting on Arevalo's behalf, a group of Arbenz's supporters set out to arrest Arana and force him into exile, which was the usual thing to do with plotters in Latin America at the time. Plotters that you didn't want to kill, you shipped abroad. Arana, instead of surrendering as they thought he would, drew his own weapon and was gunned down. That left Jacobo Arbenz as the only likely candidate for the upcoming election, but also sparked a three-day military insurrection in the capital and permanently damaged Arbenz's relationship with the armed forces, elements of which continued to suspect him of having Arana assassinated to secure the presidency. The historians I've read tend to think that the killing was a botched arrest, an accident, especially since Arbenz later gets up to less murdering than any of his opponents. But again, this is a point on which nobody can be sure anymore. The late Arana's overweening ambitions weren't Arevalo's, or Guatemala's, only problem. The last half of Arevalo's term played host to a number of ominous signs of what was to come in the 1950s. Late in 1948, the Guatemalan military discovered a shipment of small arms and heavier ordnance in a railway car owned by United Fruit at the terminus at Puerto Barrios, the port that United Fruit controlled and operated. Shortly after that, a group of exiles unhappy with the regime invaded from the Mexican border, probably with help from the UFCO, and were later put down by the Guatemalan military. In November of 1950, a friend of the late Colonel Arana named Carlos Castillo Armas launched his own unsuccessful invasion with a group of adventurers from the south. 
The Guatemalan military captured him and airmailed both him and his conspirators out of the country. At this point, Castillo Armas was in contact with the CIA, but not yet on their payroll. Halfway through Arevalo's term in 1947, the FBI men who had traditionally represented American security interests in Latin America left and were replaced by men from the newly created Central Intelligence Agency, trading a paranoid but passive institution for an active one with as many ambitions and suspicions. In April of 1950, President Arevalo, no longer able to ignore the low-level intriguing of United Fruit and the American delegation, expelled the American ambassador for plotting against the government. Around the same time, United Fruit launched a propaganda campaign meant to tar the Guatemalan government as communist and to conflate the interests of the company with the interests of the nation. They hired Edward L. Bernays, a nephew of Sigmund Freud and the quote-unquote father of modern public relations and propaganda. Bernays planted news stories all over the world, hired politicians to shill for him, contracted think tanks to write reports on Stalinism in Guatemala, and set up press junkets so that reporters from Time, Newsweek, Harper's, The New York Times, and others could fly down to Guatemala, tour company plantations, and get their stories straight from the overseers' mouths. An ex-Foreign Service officer wrote in the Washington Post in 1950, It didn't come immediately when the 13-year rule of the dictator Obico terminated in 1944. It was the hope of the leaders of the revolutionary movement from which Arevalo emerged as president that democracy could at last be made to work in Guatemala, and for two years his administration gave evidence of a liberal and progressive purpose. But gradually, more and more Reds moved into key positions, and leaders of the original movement stepped out. Now communists and near-communists have infiltrated every agency of the government, and they are the dominant factor in the present regime." End quote. This was written at a time when no communist held a cabinet or sub-cabinet post in Arevalo's administration, and when the Communist Party had not even received legal recognition in Guatemala. It was a company line fed to a newspaper that did little or nothing to vet its claims. The company propaganda man Bernays, when speaking to audiences of officials and journalists, said, Whenever you read United Fruit and Communist Propaganda, you may readily substitute United States. End quote. It's going to be a running theme in this episode that neither the U.S. nor the UFCO was interested in determining where one party's interests ended and the others began. None of it, not the local schemers, not their contacts with the CIA, nor UFCO's international efforts to smear the Guatemalan regime would bode well for Jacobo Arbenz, who, without the now-dead Arana to run against, won the next election in November 1950 in another landslide. Todo un programa de administración nacional fluye de los labios del candidato del pueblo cuando glosa su propósito al ser ungido como presidente de la república. El pueblo cree en Arbenz porque Arbenz garantiza un gobierno para el pueblo y con el pueblo. Jacobo Arbenz's only major opponent in the election of November 1950 was an ex-Ubico official, General José Miguel Ramón Idígoras Fuentes, who after his loss claimed fraud and left the country for El Salvador, where he would spend the next four years more or less quietly scheming against Arbenz. Arbenz was a native Guatemalan, although because of his fair hair, his height, and his immigrant father, he was known as the Swiss. After losing his parents early in life, Arbenz grew up among relatives and then at the military academy, where he first studied and then later taught history and science. He married the daughter of Salvadoran aristocrats, Maria Cristina Villanova, who brought with her a large dowry of land and a compassionate leftist outlook that came to shape his own. It's impossible to know exactly how their marriage worked, but more than one of the historians I've read is of the opinion that Villanova had a hand in shaping his reform policy and in pushing him to start the coup that ousted Ponce and ushered in Guatemalan democracy. From the beginning, Arbenz's agenda was more ambitious than Arevalo's, much to the disappointment of U.S. and UFCO officials who thought that his military background would make him a more conservative president. As in Arevalo's case, his inaugural address gives you a good indication. Our economic policy must necessarily be based on strengthening private initiative and developing Guatemalan capital, in whose hands rests the fundamental economic activity of the country. 
Foreign capital will always be welcome as long as it adjusts to local conditions, remains always subordinate to Guatemalan laws, cooperates with the economic development of the country, and strictly abstains from intervening in the nation's social and political life. Agrarian reform is a vital part of our program so that we can rid ourselves of the fincas and introduce fundamental changes in our primitive work methods. That is, to cultivate uncultivated lands and those lands where feudal customs are maintained, incorporating science and agricultural technology. Arben set to work in his first year and a half on a set of infrastructure projects designed to leave the Guatemalan state more robust and less dependent on outside investments and corporations. He wanted to build a new Atlantic port so that his government and local firms would not have to work through the United Fruit-controlled Puerto Varios. He began the construction of a railroad between the capital and the Atlantic coast to compete with the only other UFCO-controlled rail line in place at the time. He broke ground on a government-owned hydropower plant to break a UFCO subsidiary's monopoly on electricity production in the country, and he began work on an agrarian reform. The law that would become known as Decree 900 was the centerpiece of Arbenz's reformist agenda. It was his most ambitious program, the one most needed by the Guatemalan economy and the Guatemalan people, and it would be the downfall both of his administration and the next six decades of Guatemalan history. Agrarian reforms took the same shape all over Latin America, where almost every country inherited the same problems with land ownership from Imperial Spain. Land reforms sought to break up the massive estates of small landed elites and to distribute that land to landless peasants. That's the form that Decree 900 took, and it was nearly identical to the reforms that the United States Alliance for Progress would encourage elsewhere in Latin America later in the decade. For Arbenz in Guatemala, though, the timing and the targets of the reform would prove unacceptable to the United States. The key things to remember about the agrarian reform are that it only removed land from very large estates, and it only confiscated land that was going unfarmed. All cultivated land was immune to confiscation. That said, farms under 223 acres were exempt entirely from the law, with farms up to 670 acres exempt if they were at least two-thirds under cultivation. Land would be expropriated and distributed to peasant families in 42-acre packages. Most of those peasants would not own the land, which kept rich landowners from just buying it all back again, but instead paid the government 5% of their crop yield as a part of a perpetual loan. Now, the government didn't just steal the land from large landholders. As in most land reforms, the government paid landholders for all expropriated territory in 3% 25-year government bonds, which they could then do with what they liked. The issue for most landholders was that the government would only pay them what they themselves had said their land was worth. Because they had for decades been above the law, finqueros and foreign companies had drastically underreported the value of their holdings to reduce their tax burden, sometimes by as much as 96%. Naturally, they were unhappy with their compensation. In the 18 months that Decree 900 operated, the Agrarian Reform Department distributed more than 1.5 million acres of land to over 100,000 peasant families and paid the owners of that land more than $8 million in compensation. Proving that neither he nor his administration were above the law, Jacobo Arbenz surrendered 1,700 acres that had come from his wife's fortune, and his close advisor and foreign minister, the businessman Jorge Torguello, gave up more than 1,200. Over the life of the program, the reform managed to distribute only 16% of all unfarmed land in Guatemala, and that over the political and physical protests of the finqueros and foreign corporations. From the beginning, those landed interests decried the agrarian reform as a communist plot, and for the first time in this podcast, they were almost right. Members of the Guatemalan Communist Party advised Arbenz, helped to draft the text of the agrarian reform, and participated in its implementation, but Arbenz turned to them more than anything because he had to. The very new Guatemalan Workers' Party, El Partido de Trabajadores de Guatemala, or PGT, didn't do much to get Arbenz elected, 
But when his reforms alienated the aristocracy and when the military lent him lukewarm support because of the death of Arana, the PGT proved to be the only political force interested in working with the administration. Although always small, with less than 4,000 members in a country of over 3 million, the PGT could mobilize urban labor unions in the cities and committees of peasants in the countryside where the reform had to be enacted and enforced. But though they, or at least the head of the PGT, José Fortuny, had Arbenz's ear on the agrarian reform, communist influence in Guatemala was limited. Only four PGT candidates won election to the 51-man Congress, less than any other party, and only 26 of the 350 officials of the Agrarian Reform Department belonged to the PGT. Although claims of communist domination of the government would ring out from all sides during Arbenz's administration, PGT members occupied only seven or eight sub-cabinet posts in the three years from his election to 1954. Whatever influence the communists did have was the direct result of anti-administration pressure by the finqueros, the UFCO, and especially the United States government. It's an irony that played out dozens of times across dozens of countries that we, the United States, push regimes in the direction we don't want them to go. Suspecting communism and Soviet influence, we try to undermine democratically elected moderate governments. In response, they do what they can do, move left towards their bases of support, whether it's unions in the Communist Party, as in Guatemala's case, or towards the Soviet Union, as it was in Cuba's. As for what ties Arbenz and the PGT had to the USSR, ties that obsessively preoccupied UFCO and US government officials for years, there were none. Nick Kulather, the historian who wrote the official CIA history of what went on in Guatemala in the 50s, had this to say. The Soviets made one contact with the Arbenz government, an attempt to buy bananas. The deal fell through when the Guatemalans could not arrange transport without help from the United Fruit Company. End quote. Opponents of the reform among the finqueros and foreign firms brought suit against the government, and in February 1953, seven months after its passage, the Supreme Court of Guatemala declared Decree 900 unconstitutional. Because the Guatemalan constitution works differently than ours, President Arbenz then fired the Supreme Court, a decision that the Congress ratified after nearly 39 hours of debate. From that point on, landed interests had no legal recourse with which to oppose the expropriation of their land, and in some cases they continued their resistance to the law by force, threatening, beating, and murdering activists and participants in the program. As far as United Fruit, they were thinking bigger than individual peasants. Thomas McCann spent two decades working for the company, some of that time as a top executive. After quitting, he wrote a book called An American Company, The Tragedy of United Fruit, detailing what he'd seen and heard. Of Arbenz and the agrarian reform, he wrote that, Guatemala was chosen as the site for the company's earliest development activities at the turn of the century because a good portion of the country contained prime banana land, and because at the time we entered Central America, Guatemala's government was the region's weakest, most corrupt, and most pliable. In short, the country offered an ideal investment climate, and United Fruit's profits there flourished for 50 years. Then something went wrong. A man named Jacobo Arbenz became president. End quote. In March 1953, after the Supreme Court battle, the government of Guatemala confiscated more than 200,000 acres of unfarmed land from the USCO, an area one-fourth the size of Rhode Island. The government paid the company $627,572, which is what it had reported the land was worth for decades. Unsurprisingly, the United Fruit Company called foul, and the ambassador and the United States government stepped in to act as legal advocates for the company. Guatemala had paid the company $3 an acre for land it had bought 20 years earlier for $1.50. The State Department, in turn, demanded $75 an acre for that land, or 25 times as much as its reported worth. 
Throughout 1953 and in the first months of 1954, the Agrarian Reform Department would confiscate close to another 200,000 acres of land from United Fruit, all of it unfarmed and all of it paid for. United Fruit, and by extension, the government of the United States, would not take those comp. As far as the domestic situation, apart from the finqueros, the Guatemalan populace supported the reform overwhelmingly at the outset, especially with regard to the UFCO. Ronald Schneider, who wrote A History of Communism in Guatemala, said that for many Guatemalans, the United Fruit Company was the United States. In the past, UFCO and its sister companies had bribed politicians, pressured governments, and intimidated opponents to win extremely favorable concessions. To the Guatemalans, it appeared that their country was being mercilessly exploited by foreign interests, which took huge profits without making any significant contributions to the nation's welfare. In the eyes of many Guatemalans, the foreign corporations had to pay for their past crimes and for the years in which they had operated hand-in-hand -hand with the Estrada Cabrera and Ubico dictatorships to exploit the Guatemalan people. It is not difficult to see how Guatemalans could believe that their country was economically a captive of the United States corporations." End quote. Unfortunately, the conflict stirred up by opposition to the agrarian reform, especially the armed resistance mounted or funded by the finqueros and the UFCO, left the non-union and non-peasant population of Guatemala more and more exhausted as 1953 moved into 1954, eroding Arbenz's societal support. Back in the United States, United Fruit doubled down on its propaganda campaign, hiring a man named Thomas Corcoran to lobby the U.S. government specifically. Corcoran had old ties to intelligence organizations that later became the CIA, to elected officials, and to Walter Beetle Smith, who was the director of the CIA under Truman. Corcoran hired more ex-politicians to shill for the company on Capitol Hill, and contracted with a rabidly anti-communist think tank called Clements Associates to write a report about Guatemala. For $35,000, Clements turned out 235 pages of nearly pure fiction, making wild claims about Soviet influence in Guatemala and communist domination of the government. Kinzer and Schlesinger write that the report was passed from hand to hand, and some of the defamatory research later found its way into the State Department's white paper on Guatemala issued in 1954, into the department's subsequent report, Intervention of International Communism in Guatemala, into speeches at the United Nations, and into other official releases. End quote. Short aside here, this is how lobbying works. This is how it worked then, it's how it worked today, although it's a little bit easier to check stuff on Google now. It works by putting your biased information in front of the right people and convincing them that it's the truth. That's how climate change denial works. That's how the gun lobby works. That's how this worked. The real problem for Arbenz, much more serious than even the UFCO smear campaign, was Eisenhower's election to the presidency in 1952. According to Kulather, the CIA historian, in 1947 and 1948, the Truman administration developed a subtle understanding of the likely consequences of the communist takeover of a government outside of the Eastern Bloc. Officials recognized that indigenous revolutionary parties received scant support and often had little contact with Moscow. Even so, they reasoned, communist governments would likely take actions, such as closing bases or restricting trade, that would shift power away from the United States and towards the Soviet Union. By the onset of the Korean War, this analysis lost nuance. Officials in the State Department, the CIA, and the Pentagon regarded all communists as Soviet agents. John Purifoy, who became ambassador to Guatemala in 1953, expressed the consensus when he observed that communism is directed by the Kremlin all over the world, and anyone who thinks differently doesn't know what he's talking about. End quote. End quote. We'll get back to John Purifoy real quick in this podcast. Eisenhower installed a slate of activist anti-communists, the most important being John Foster Dulles as the Secretary of State, John Foster's brother Alan Dulles as the director of the CIA, and Walter Beetle Smith, who he moved from the CIA into the State Department. 
Each of them brought staffs, protégés, and hangers-on, all dedicated to an activist anti-communist policy overseas, and all who had a fascination with covert operations. Even worse for Guatemala was that many of them had strong ties to United Fruit. John Foster Dulles worked as a senior partner at a New York law firm called Sullivan and Cromwell. Sullivan and Cromwell worked for J. Henry Schroeder Banking. Schroeder advised IRCA, which was a subsidiary of United Fruit in Guatemala. Dulles, as counsel to Schroeder, managed IRCA's buyout by UFCO. Alan Dulles also worked for Sullivan and Cromwell and ended up on the board of J. Henry Schroeder Banking. J. Henry Schroeder Banking held a large stake of UFCO stock, its president served on IRCA's board, and the CIA used J. Henry Schroeder Banking as a place to hide funds during covert operations. John Moore's Cabot worked under John Foster Dulles as the Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs. His family owned a large stake in the United Fruit Company. His brother Thomas Dudley Cabot was president of UFCO in 1948. Henry Cabot Lodge, United States Senator, Ambassador to West Germany, South Vietnam, and the UN, also owned large amounts of UFCO stock and used his senatorship to advocate for UFCO interests. President Eisenhower's personal secretary was the wife of the United Fruit Company's public relations director. Robert Hill, United States Ambassador to Costa Rica in 1954, had worked with UFCO and later became its director. Walter Beadle Smith, upset that Eisenhower moved him from CIA to state, spent the early 1950s both planning coups against Guatemala and seeking an executive spot at the United Fruit Company, which he later received. Once the UFCO discovered that Decree 900 was not something that it could bully or litigate its way around, and once Eisenhower had brought in his troop of McCarthyite darlings, things in Guatemala started to happen, and to happen ever more quickly. Before we get to that, though, and before things get too messy to slow down for something like this, let me read you a long pull quote from Kinzer and Schlesinger about the economic situation at the end of Arbenz's term. This was published in Foreign Affairs in 1956 and reproduced in the book. San Luis Gilotepec is a municipio in the department of Jalapa, about 100 miles east of the capital city in a straight line, and approximately 170 miles by road. About two-thirds of the population are classified as Indian linguistic stock, and the rest are Ladinos. Prior to 1944, Ladinos owned about 70% of the agricultural land. Come the revolution of 1944, and things began to change, even in San Luis, whether for better or worse. By 1955, the following innovations had become established. Roads and bridges had been improved so that regular thrice-weekly bus service connected the town with the outside world, both to the east and west. The number of copies of daily newspapers received had risen from 5 to 35. A diesel-electric light plant provided street lighting, home lighting, and current for 20 radios, 7 electric refrigerators, and several corn grinding mills for making masa for tortillas. The number of schools had gone up from 4 to 12, and school enrollment had increased by more than 200%, with a proportionately higher augment among Indian children. University-trained principals had been in charge since 1946. All labor for the local government was now paid at a rate officially declared to be 80 cents a day. Movies were shown about once a week. The church was restored by the Arbenz government, and a resident priest established for the first time in 50 years. The main street was paved. These things had provided access for the people of San Luis, Indian, and Ladino alike to ideas and organizational movements of the nation and the outside world. Moving on. This is literally the subject of another podcast, but in August 1953, Eisenhower gave the CIA field offices in Tehran the go-ahead for Operation Ajax, a plot designed to instigate a coup against the democratically elected and socialist-leaning Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. 
and to return power to Iran's repressive monarch, the Shah. Mossadegh had been instituting a series of moderate reforms meant to put the Iranian state on a more secure, equitable footing. Huh. Anyway, within the month, the CIA had bribed enough army officers, clergymen, and mobsters to unseat Mossadegh and put Shah Pahlavi in firm pro-Western control of the country, at least until the 1970s when a much less moderate revolution would unseat him. It's hard to overstate how important the success of Operation Ajax was to the CIA and to the Eisenhower administration in shaping their view of cost-effective solutions to communism abroad. Imagine pretty much every word in that last sentence in ironic air quotes. With relatively little cash, just a few CIA men, and a boatload of local stooges, the CIA had rid itself of a world leader in less than a month. It was a model that seemed, hint, too good to be true, and the CIA and subsequent administrations would continue to use it for decades. As far as specific reactions to the operation, Kermit Roosevelt, the grandson of Teddy and the director of Ajax, met with Alan Dulles in Washington after the operation. Roosevelt described Dulles as, quote, almost alarmingly enthusiastic, unquote, about future prospects for coups overseas. And there was little doubt as to where the next operation would take place. A report from Eisenhower's National Security Council quoted in Kulather's CIA history said that, Guatemala represented in miniature all of the social cleavages, tensions, and dilemmas of modern Western society under attack by the communist virus. We should regard Guatemala as a prototype area for testing means and methods of combating communism, unquote. Before I go on, let's unpack that quote for a second, since it was representative of the administration's attitude towards Guatemala. One, it contends that Guatemala is an example of communism destroying Western society. But whatever Western society there was in Guatemala was either the sole province of exploitative finqueros or had been carved out of the dictatorship for the rest of the population, in part by the communists themselves by way of the unions and the agrarian reform. Second, the report says that the United States should regard Guatemala as a laboratory for anti-communist experiments. The word should has a certain moral value, and I think few times has it been more misused outside of Vansay. We should use a democratic nation to try out our new schemes. We should play out our political ambitions across the souls and bodies of three million people. By what right? By the virtue of being whiter than them? Of being farther north? When would we ever acknowledge the right of another country to experiment on us? If they were more powerful? If they were more racially pure? If we can't imagine a situation in which Canada could use the United States as a guinea pig for its intelligence services, then we might have to admit that there was no moral justification for doing the same to Guatemala and that there might never be a moral justification for doing this kind of thing to any other country in the world. Anyway, the CIA had been waiting for an agreeable State Department, which it got in the form of Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and Undersecretary Walter Beadle Smith. Because as it turns out, the CIA had tried to run a coup way back in 1952, just two months after Arbenz had passed the agrarian reform. A guy named J.C. King, the CIA head of Western Hemisphere Operations, cooked up a plan to unseat Arbenz. He got in touch with Thomas Corcoran, one of the UFCO's propaganda men, and arranged for company boats to ship CIA weapons down to Nicaragua. There, our old friend and already a veteran of at least one failed invasion, Carlos Castillo Armas, was waiting with a group of Guatemalan exiles ready to invade. Additional funding and material support came by way of Rafael Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, Anastasio Somoza of Nicaragua, and Marcos Perez Jimenez of Venezuela, all dictators and all great friends of the United States. J.C. King had been working on the plan directly with Truman and had cut state out of the loop, but when Secretary of State Dean Acheson caught wind of the plan and realized what a terrible idea it was, he went straight to the president and talked him out of it. 
With John Foster Dulles and Eisenhower now at Foggy Bottom and Pennsylvania Avenue, nobody would be pulling any plugs. Alan Dulles and his cohort were rearing to go after Operation Ajax, but they'd been set back by an earlier cock-up in the tragic comedy that was the last two years of Guatemalan democracy. Earlier in the year, the same Thomas Corcoran had gotten back in touch with J.C. King at the CIA, and King gave Corcoran nudge-wink approval for whatever plans the UFCO could cook up in Guatemala. So in March 1953, as the Agrarian Reform Department was starting its second set of expropriations against the UFCO, the company paid $64,000 to 200 mercenaries led by a group of exiled Guatemalan army officers equipped with CIA weapons in order to launch yet another insurrection. That group took a city called Salama in the central highlands and held it for less than a day before the Guatemalan army retook the place, killed four of them, and imprisoned the rest. In the course of their trials, and note that they got trials, the role of the UFCO came to light, but not yet that of the CIA. Their confessions exposed many of the CIA assets in the country and set back any potential operations by months. Another aside here, can you imagine the patience and the frustration of the Arbenz administration? To know that this massive company is literally trying to invade your country and bring down your government by force because you're making it follow the law of the land? And to know that it has the full support of the United States? They knew all that and had to suffer through UFCO's smear campaign slandering the country and the government in the world press, making hysterical claims about communist takeovers even as they were trying to take over the country. If you think we've got it bad with corporations now, man. In the wake of all those revelations, Arbenz became trying to obtain arms to prepare his armed forces for further invasions. Unfortunately, in response to the democratization of Guatemala, Truman and then Eisenhower had already set up under-the-table blockades, and the Guatemalan army had not been able to buy guns or ammunition for years. So, relying again on the only constituency that had always been loyal to him, Arbenz sent the head of the Guatemalan Communist Party, Fortuny, to Czechoslovakia to see if he could scare up some guns. With those delays in mind, Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers got to work. They offered the planning of the operation to Kermit Roosevelt, the guy who ran Ajax. He told them that for a coup to work, both the military and the populace had to have the same goals for the country as the United States. And since he could see what nobody else in Washington apparently could, namely that the Guatemalan military was loyal to Arbenz, and that the Guatemalan populace largely liked the agrarian reform and overwhelmingly supported democracy versus continued military dictatorship, he had his doubts. He said, this time quoted in Kinzer and Schlesinger, that Dulles did not want to hear what I was saying. He was still leaning back in his chair with a cat-like grin on his face. Within weeks, I was offered command of a Guatemalan undertaking already in preparation. A quick check suggested that my requirements were not likely to be met. I declined the offer. Unquote. Kermit Roosevelt's abstention at this point is important, because every historian will at least raise the argument that Eisenhower and company were misinformed about the situation in Guatemala, that they thought the communists really were taking over, that something really did have to be done. But Roosevelt proves that there was other information available if you just wanted to have it. There's maybe some moral ambiguity if somebody tricks you into doing something wrong, but if you trick yourself into doing something evil, I'm not sure there's much ethical ground left for you. So without Kermit Roosevelt on board, Alan Dulles told Frank Wisner, CIA's head of operations, to start thinking of what to do with Guatemala and whether they could repeat Operation Ajax there. Dulles gave Wisner a provisional budget of $3 million. He also called in Colonel Albert Haney, who had been CIA station chief in South Korea and who had made extensive use of commandos and cross-border raids. Dulles gave Haney carte blanche to concoct a plan and told him to report directly to Wisner rather than to the chief of Western Hemisphere operations. That was a slight to J.C. King and turned King against the potential operation, but more as a matter of jealousy than of ethics. Office politics playing itself out across Central America. Trying to insinuate himself into the planning even so, King invited Colonel Haney for a chat. 
He suggested that Haney talk to the UFCO's ad man and CIA go-between, Tom Corcoran, to see if he could build on the ruins of Operation Fortune, his aborted plan from 1952. Haney thought that UFCO's participation was more of a liability than an asset, and King berated him, saying that, If you think you can run this operation without United Fruit, you're crazy. Unquote. Ties between the CIA and the company were maybe a little too tight, is what I'm saying. In this case, though, Haney left King's advice on the table and planned the operation on his own, leaving the UFCO for the most part without a direct role. Colonel Haney's plan came in four parts, each of which would also more or less be a different chronological stage. The first was to demoralize Arbenz's bases of support, the peasant population and organized labor. The second was to undermine the loyalty of the armed forces, primarily by using the ambassador to spread rumors and offer large bribes to officers. The third was a massive in-country propaganda campaign through illegal radio broadcasts, agents inside of Guatemala, and airdropped leaflets. The last step would be to place a mercenary force on Guatemala's southern border, first to conduct sabotage, and then to lead a minuscule invasion that CIA propaganda would inflate in size and scope. To head it all up and to give it a Guatemalan face, they needed a figurehead, the Liberator. First, they looked at General Idigoras, the guy who lost to Arbenz in the 1950 election. In Guatemala, he'd been famously cruel and corrupt during his time in the army, and the CIA officers who contracted him hated him personally. But he turned them down. I quoted Mario Rosenthal earlier, and he was a journalist for the AP at the time, and later wrote a book with Idigoras. He has the general saying that, quote, They said I was a popular figure in Guatemala, and that they wanted to lend assistance to overthrow Arbenz. Among other things, I was to promise to favor the United Fruit Company and the International Railways of Central America, IRCA, to destroy the railroad workers' labor union, to suspend claims against Great Britain for the Belize territory, to establish a strong-armed government on the style of Rubico. Further, I was to pay back every cent that was invested in the undertaking on the basis of accounts that would be presented to me afterwards. According to Schlesinger and Kinzer, even Edigoras' flexible scruples were offended, and he called the conditions abusive and inequitable. With what had looked like their best option out of the picture, the CIA turned once again to Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas. He had a certain unearned military reputation in the exile community, and the agency found him pliable. A correspondent for Time said that they picked Castillo Armas because he was a younger man than Idigoras, but also because he was a stupid man, unquote. They flew Castillo Armas out to Florida and gave him the same offer they'd given Idigoras. He took it, no questions asked. By the end of 1953, Haney's plan was ready and he gave it to Frank Wisner, who thought it would be too expensive, and to J.C. King, who still was angry that it didn't involve the UFCO. The three of them took it to Alan Dulles, who said that he had to confer with his brother. Later, they met for drinks at Dulles's estate in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and Dulles asked Haney one last time if he thought that the plan would work. Haney said to him, Sir, with your help, we can win. Dulles then patted him on the back and said, Then go to it, my boy. You've got the green light. Mr. Dulles, I know you've heard this many times, that there are people who say that we, with regard to the CIA, are waging a secret war with an invisible government. Intelligence is nothing really other than information and knowledge. Uh, but the idea that uh, it is necessarily nefarious, it's always engaged in overthrowing governments, that's false. That's for the birds. As Alan Dulles took care of his side of the operation, his older brother John Foster mobilized the State Department. He sent a new ambassador, John Purifoy, to replace Rudolf Schoenfeld, who the United States had refused to recall when Arevalo asked him to leave. John Purifoy, and let's get this straight up front, was an asshole. 
Purefoy's last post was in Greece from 1950 to 1953, and he'd made a name for himself by supporting the pseudo-fascist and dictatorial monarchy against leftist rebels, and by working closely and obligingly with the CIA field office there. Purefoy was a Democrat and might have been let go or shuffled off to an unimportant post under Eisenhower's Republican administration, but he lobbied hard for the transfer to Guatemala when he caught wind of the CIA action there. Kinzer and Schlesinger think that Dulles might have given him the post so that they'd have a Democratic rather than a Republican fall guy if things went south. Purifoy was more down-home Southerner than the Ivy League types that filled the diplomatic service at the time, and in some cases still do, and while there's merit in that kind of upbringing, Purifoy was a meat-headed ignorant with something to prove. He'd been serving in Washington as a Deputy Undersecretary of State when McCarthy accused the State Department of being riddled with communists, and he'd been eager to prove his anti-Pinko bona fides ever since. When John Purifoy arrived in Guatemala, he spoke no Spanish, knew nothing about the country or its political situation, and was more than ready to turn up the heat on some goddamn communists, even if he had to invent them. I'm going to pull another couple of long quotes from Schlesinger and Kinzer here, and I know I've been doing it a lot, but they've got two beautiful excerpts from diplomatic cables that Purifoy sent to Washington after a sit-down with Arbenz early in his term. Quote, The president stated that the problem in this country is one between the fruit company and the government. He went into a long dissertation giving the history of the fruit company from 1904, and since then, he complains, they have paid no taxes to the government. He said that today, when the government has a budget of $70 million to meet, the fruit company contributes approximately 150000 This is derived solely from the one-cent tax applied to each stem of bananas which is exported. I interrupted the president at this point to tell him that I thought we should consider first things first, and that it seemed to me that as long as the communists exercise the influence which they presently do with the government, I could not see any real hope of bringing about better relations. Later, I told him the fruit company was relatively a small corporation by American standards, and that, insofar as I knew, no corporation dominated any press in the United States. After all, I pointed out, there have been many newspaper men who have come to Guatemala and have determined on the spot the facts. They have talked with all types of people here in the city and have reached their conclusions independently. Unquote. That is some smug bullshit. Purifoy determined to do whatever he had to do for the CIA, and one of his first acts on the ground was to set up a secret communication system with the CIA station chief. I'm using air quotes when I say secret there, since the system was that the station chief would walk to his office and speak to him in person. Beyond that, he got on the horn with the United States Information Agency, the official propaganda arm of the U.S. government, to run yet another smear campaign against the Arbenz administration, this one across all of Latin America. The Information Agency doesn't exist anymore, by the way. We shut down our international lie service in 1999. In September 1953, plans were still taking shape for what would be called Operation Success. As people were being called, contacts set up, dictators convinced, and money moved around, a Panamanian named Jorge Delgado got in touch with Arbenz's administration and informed them that he was both working for the CIA and that he wanted to become a double agent, passing Arbenz all the information that he could about his own and the CIA's activities. He did so until late January 1954, when success was getting into full swing, and he chartered a flight into Guatemala City carrying as many documents as he could, giving Arbenz and his advisors a nearly complete version of the CIA's plan for the next six months. Around that same time, Arbenz initiated a number of defensive policing measures that for the first time moved the Guatemalan state towards the repressive fiction that the UFCO, the CIA, and the United States Information Agency had been peddling abroad for months and years at that point. He curtailed what had been until then an entirely free press and shuttered the one anti-government radio station. 
He used his constitutional authority to temporarily suspend some political rights, as Arevalo had done a number of times in the face of coups and invasions, and rounded up several hundred suspected dissidents and put them in indefinite detention. I think it's been pretty clear whose side I'm on in this whole debacle, or at least who I'm against, and this is the first time that a democratically elected Guatemalan has made my position less tenable. What Arvens does here is constitutional, but dubious, and while, by all accounts, the detentions were pretty mild, several people ended up dying under mysterious circumstances, and while a handful of folks pairs before what'll happen in episode 2, it's capital B bad news. All the same, if Arbenz had wanted to go the way of the dictator, he would have done it in 1951, or even in 1944 when he was a member of the junta. The story of the repression of dissidents at the end of his term is the story of the CIA pushing a mild-mannered, unassuming, uncorrupted politician, something rare and precious, to crack down on his own people in a way he clearly did not want to. He waited out three invasions, dozens of plots, unlawful violence, and not even secret attempts by the UFCO and the US government to bring down not just his administration, but his whole political system. And he waited until a defector literally handed him a CIA plan to pull out all the stops. What I'm saying is that I don't know about you, but at this point I'm still on the side of the Republic of Guatemala. In any case, Arbenz and his administration published the papers that Delgado had flown into the country, but nobody bought it. Part of the problem was that conspiracy theories were as rife in Central America at the time as they are in Trump's campaign speeches right now, and part of it was that the Guatemalans hastily and clumsily printed U.S. government insignias on what had been incriminating but unmarked papers. So people, even in Guatemala, thought the whole thing was fake. The extent to which Truman and Eisenhower had sullied FDR's memory and spat on the good neighbor policy was not fully known yet down there, and the U.S. would work through the last vestiges of that benefit-of-the-doubt goodwill by June. Now, I went and dug up a bunch of newspaper articles from that winter, and it might have been the easiest research I had to do for this whole episode. The American press had become so anti-Arbenz by that point that any ProQuest search for a date range between 1950 and 1954, with Guatemala in it, comes up ugly roses. Here's some stuff from a Washington Post article from January 30th. Quote, Guatemalan charges that Nicaragua and three Latin American neighbors plotted with United States approval to topple President Jacob Arbenz Guzman's red-tinged regime brought denials and a countercharge today. Besides branding the Guatemalan charge ridiculous and untrue, the State Department hinted the accusations might be linked with the recent visit to Moscow of Victor Manuel Gutierrez, whom it described as a notorious communist and leader of the communist-dominated Guatemalan Labor Confederation. Unquote. That's the Post literally quoting the State Department without any journalistic interference, spelling Arbenz's name wrong, and writing red-tinged regime as if it were a professional way to introduce a democratic government. I imagine that articles like this might have been part of the reason that Arbenz lost his scruples about shutting down the foreign press. Hoping to pressure Guatemala on another front, John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State Dulles, called a meeting of the Organization of American States for that March, March of 1954. The OAS, which was more or less founded in 1948, was the heir to the Pan-American Union and before that to even earlier Bolivarian ambitions of uniting all of Spanish America in a political confederation. That dream died with Simón Bolívar, and the Pan-American Union was a very weak trade organization, but the Organization of American States had a little more to it. More UN than EU, especially in the 1950s, the OAS was a trade union, a defensive pact, and a governing body. In the early years, it was pretty bare-bones, but if you recognize names like the Inter-American Development Bank, the Alliance for Progress, or the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, those all are or were parts of the OAS. The members of the OAS, including the U.S., Guatemala, and almost every state south of the Rio Bravo, got together in 1947 and signed the Inter-American Treaty of Reciprocal Assistance, or the Rio Treaty, cementing the defense bit. 
In 1948, in Bogota, they met again in a conference presided over by George Marshall of the Marshall Plan and signed the Charter of the Organization of American States, creating the governance part. The first stated goal of the Charter was the, quote, peaceful resolution of disputes, unquote. Also signed at that meeting was the American Declaration of the Rights and Duties of Man, which beat out even the UN's version by a few months. Two rights enumerated in that declaration were the right to participate in one's own government and the right to associate for whatever political purpose. Interestingly, the words communism, suspected communism, red, red-tinged, or goddamn pinko do not appear in either of those documents. Anyway, John Foster Dulles called the March meeting of the OAS so that he could ignore every word of its charter and betray every one of its principles in order to bully the Guatemalan government more effectively. When he personally attended the conference in Caracas, he was angling for a resolution that condemned the capture or control of any American government by any outside power, which government and which power went unsaid, but were understood by all attendees to mean Guatemala and the Soviet menace. Further, JF wanted to open the possibility of invoking a provision of the Rio Treaty against Arbenz's government. An article of that treaty stated that if two-thirds of the representatives to the OAS agreed that one country was under some threat that was, quote, not an armed attack, unquote, they could vote in some way to intervene. John Foster wanted to pressure the delegates of the OAS into the less serious condemnation to let them and Guatemala know that he could get them behind the more serious provisions of the Rio Treaty if Operation Success went wrong or needed a little help. Those foreign ministers and foreign secretaries in attendance who did not belong to dictators were already very aware of the U.S.'s long history of marine invasions and Teddy Roosevelt-style big sticking and were suspicious of any U.S. agenda in Central America, even if they weren't certain of the details. But by 1954, the whole region had been in a years-long post-war economic slump, and each of their government's prime objective at the conference was to obtain trade concessions from the United States. So in the end, Dulles got his condemnation, although Guillermo Torriello, Guatemala's foreign minister and one of Arbenz's closest confidants, had his moment too. Quote, What is the real and effective reason for describing our government as communist? What source comes from the accusation that we threaten continental solidarity and security? Why do they wish to intervene in Guatemala? The answers are simple and evident. The plan of national liberation being carried out with firmness by my government has necessarily affected the privileges of the foreign enterprises that are impeding the progress and the economic development of the country. With construction of publicly owned ports and docks, we are putting an end to the monopoly of the United Fruit Company. We feel this proposal was merely a pretext for intervention in our internal affairs. They wanted to find a ready expedient to maintain the economic dependence of the American republics and suppress the legitimate desires of their peoples, cataloging as communism every manifestation of nationalism or economic independence, any desire for social progress, any intellectual curiosity, and any interest in progressive and liberal reforms. President Franklin Roosevelt put an end to this policy of interventionism, and with him there flourished a new pan-Americanism filled with promise. But it appears that certain United States officials wish to restore that policy that did so much damage. Unquote. Torriello's speech didn't save Guatemala or the conference, but the assembled delegates of Latin America gave it a pointed standing ovation. Even before the OAS meeting and the government crackdown, though, Arbenz's administration seemed to be coming apart under the strain of internal resistance and external pressure. On the 19th of January, 1954, Arbenz and his agricultural minister got in a heated public argument about the agrarian reform and the role of the Communist Party. The minister, Alfonso Martinez, fled the country the next day and headed for Switzerland. The CIA, suspicious of any government movements, tracked him first to Bern, where he opened bank accounts in Arbenz's name, and then to Prague in Czechoslovakia. Do you remember when Fortuny, the head of the Guatemalan Workers' Party, left in 1953 to see if he could scare up any guns? 
He'd been working for months with the Czech Communist Party to buy 2,000 tons of decommissioned weapons that had been captured from the Nazis in the 1940s, and Martinez had followed four months later to steal the deal. Martinez had the weapons crated and labeled optical and laboratory equipment before shipping them by rail to the port of Szczetin in Poland. The CIA tracked them there and onto a steamer called the Alfheim, but only managed to get a partial and incorrect destination. The captain of the Alfheim set out for Dakar in French West Africa on the 17th of April 1954. Six days later, he was radioed new instructions, turning him to Curaçao in the Dutch West Indies. On May 7th, he changed again, this time towards Honduras, and only on the 13th of May did he receive final instructions pointing him to Guatemala. Two days later, he docked at Puerto Barrios, where the Guatemalan defense minister was waiting in the steam heat of a tropical spring to bring them to Guatemala City. The CIA's failure to track and intercept the weapons initially shocked the agency and the State Department, but both organizations ended up turning the incident to American ends. It turned out that the CIA had already been setting up a fake delivery of Soviet arms to use as a pretext for unleashing the full fury of their coup operation, and the Alfheim just gave them a much more believable excuse. On State's side, John Foster Dulles called a meeting of the Intelligence Advisory Committee, a gathering of the head spooks from the military, the Joint Chiefs, State, and the AEC, and whipped them into a hysterical frenzy. They decided that the shipment of Czech weapons would allow Arbenz's under-equipped 5,000-man army to sweep through 800 miles of Central American mountain and jungle and take the Panama Canal Zone. That totally realistic estimate of the state of affairs allowed John Foster to go to Eisenhower and the National Security Council and to have them funnel even more funds into the CIA's Operation Success. Eisenhower, wanting to jam another nail in a coffin that was by this point made of mostly metal, used the weapons shipment to impose a peacetime blockade of Guatemala, an act so illegal that neither our own State Department nor our British partners in imperialism could get on board with it. From State's own legal office, quote, In the absence of an armed attack, measures such as the interception, involving the use of force, could not be justified either under the Rio Treaty or under the United Nations Charter. On the facts now known to this office, there appears to be no basis for concluding that any nation is committing an armed attack against any American state. Guatemala is apparently not committing armed attack against any of its neighbors. In these circumstances, if the United States were to intercept and escort by force any ship in Guatemalan territorial waters or on the high seas to an American port, there would be no legal justification for such an action under the Rio Treaty or under the United Nations Charter. Such an action would constitute a violation of international law." Unquote. Despite the fact that we went to war with the British in 1812 for just that sort of violation, we've never been big fans of international law when it comes to our own actions. The group of commandos and saboteurs that the CIA had been preparing for Operation Success along Guatemala's southern border got to work too, planting dynamite along the railroad tracks that would ship the weapons to Guatemala City. Proving that in the case of the victims of the United States, God prefers small victories to larger ones, a rainstorm wetted the saboteurs' fuses, and the arms made their way safely to the capital. So, Operation Success. I've been all over 1954 by now, and I've been avoiding going into success because once we start with that, we're getting really ready for the end. But now we can't avoid it, and from here on in, I'll be moving chronologically, give or take a couple of days, from January 1954 straight through to the end of the episode. That said, with success, the CIA was looking to turn back the clock in Guatemala to before 1944 ending the land reform program and replacing Arbenz with an interim, quote, liberal authoritarian leader, unquote. They expected that an extended period of dictatorial rule would follow during which the regime would be beholden to the United States. 
All that is drawn from a memo in which Jacob Esterline, who represented success in D.C. and who was later the project director of the Bay and Pigs invasion, to Haney, who, remember, was running the show in Guatemala, in April 1954. It was the explicit intent of the CIA to generate a dictatorship favorable to the United States. We don't just deal with bad guys when it's the only option. We actively create and support them over democratic governments. Quoting Kulather's CIA history now, quote, Haney considered democracy an unrealistic alternative for Guatemala, premature extension of democratic privileges and responsibilities to a people still accustomed to patriarchal methods can only be harmful, he warned. A judicious combination of authority and liberty will have to govern the political system. There is an increasing recognition in American and other banking circles that the economic development of countries such as Guatemala cannot be undertaken and financed under strictly economic criteria. We realize that there must necessarily be a certain wastage of funds because of local political conditions. We are prepared to underwrite this wastage." Unquote. The CIA might have been prepared to underwrite the further economic development of Guatemala, but it was not prepared to deal with the entrenched finquero interest in the status quo ante, and the U.S. government was definitely not prepared to fund anything other than the Guatemalan military. So with the dubious moral certainty that they'd be making a mess, and with the tenuous understanding of what they'd do to clean it up afterwards, Operation Success got into full swing in January 1954. CIA Director Alan Dulles gave Colonel Albert Haney final approval of his plans for success at a breakfast meeting in Georgetown in D.C. in late December 1953. And by the early days of the new year, Haney was already setting up what would become a massive base of operations in an unused office building at an airfield in Opa a small town outside of Miami. This would be the nerve center coordinating the widespread international elements of Operation Success, and by the end of the month, Haney had filled the building with agents, exiles, hangers-on, and all the secretaries that it could hold. In the same period, he began hiring pilots for his planned air operations, either out of the ranks of the CIA's cover airline, Civil Air Transport, or out of the number of unscrupulous wildcat pilots who flew for South American Democrats and dictators alike. Also in January, the Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza finally secured a visit to the White House and an attendant military aid deal. The CIA had decided that his extensive help would be absolutely essential to the success of success, so the Eisenhower administration obligingly turned over thousands of tons of weapons to a known murderer. Nicaraguan territory secured, Haney began setting up training in air bases in Nicaragua and in the Panama Canal Zone, where his pilots and a growing group of mercenaries and disgruntled Guatemalans would prepare for their coming invasion. The Comité de Estudiantes Universitarios Anticomunistas, the Committee of Anti-Communist University Students, or CEUA, which had been operating since 1953, ramped up their activities in January 1954. Ostensibly an independent group, the students were almost exclusively sons and daughters of the aristocracy who were taking their cues from CIA handlers. They ran graffiti and postering campaigns throughout the previous year, and at CIA urging began targeting individual communists, marking their homes and harassing their families. The CIA and the State Department began working on undermining the Guatemalan armed forces and would continue to do so through the spring. Haney and his boys deposited cash into Swiss bank accounts and proceeded to try to bribe first Arbenz, then most of the members of his government, and then the officer corps. His administration was untouchable and his military loyal, but despite early failures, both Ambassador Purifoy and CIA emissaries would more or less openly keep up their overtures to the high command throughout the course of the operation. Here's a long quote from Kulather describing how that happened. U.S. military advisors and embassy officials joined the effort to spread fear and dissension among the officer corps, telling military leaders in unguarded terms that the United States could no longer tolerate Arbenz and would take drastic steps if the army failed to act. We were under enormous pressure, one Guatemalan officer remembered. The United States military mission even hinted that the U.S. would invade. Haney used all available means to impress on army officers the facts of life as far as they are concerned. And here follows a list. A. 
they are in the United States' sphere of influence. B. If they think that a people of 3 million is going to win in a showdown with 60 million, they need psychiatric help. C. If they think that the U.S. will never come to a showdown, they don't understand gringos. It might be useful to explain gringos in the way that foreigners see them, and point out that force is the follower of reason in the American pattern. D. If they think that the Soviet Union can bail them out of this predicament, they once more require psychiatric help. E. If they think that the Soviet Union will or even wants to bail them out, it should be perfectly clear to them that the Soviet Union is exploiting them only to create a diversion in the United States backyard while Indochina is hot, and that Soviets will drop them in a hurry when the going gets tough. F. If they are unhappy about being in the U.S. sphere of influence, they might be reminded that the U.S. is the most generous and tolerant taskmaster going, that cooperation with it is studded with material reward, and that the U.S. permits much more sovereignty and independence in its sphere than the Soviets, and so forth. End quote. Remember that these threats are coming from a country that for decades has supplied and partnered with the military in question. There's a trust that these officers have for the U.S. military, even if they're loyal to Arbenz. At the end of the month, Jorge Delgado arrived by plane in Guatemala City, carrying almost the entire plan for Operation Success, and delivered it into Arbenz's hands. Arbenz published the papers, and the international press called the whole thing a crude hoax. In early February, the Agrarian Reform Department ordered what would be the last expropriation of UFCO plantation land. Later in the month, Haney set up a radio camp in Nicaragua to train operators for the upcoming propaganda campaign. He installed radio equipment along the border in El Salvador, in Mexico, in the Dominican Republic, and in the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala, ensuring that when the time came, the signal would get through. The man he recruited to run the radio operation was E. Howard Hunt, a future Watergate criminal. Hunt went to Mexico and picked up David Atlee Phillips, a sometimes actor and sometimes CIA man. Atlee Phillips and three Guatemalan exiles would work together to prepare a, quote, terror broadcast, unquote, and other material for the radio program. Early in March, Atlee Phillips and the exiles arrived in Opa and began writing and recording tapes that would be broadcast as live transmissions when the Voice of Liberation Radio went on air later in the spring. On the 26th of March, John Foster Dulles secured his resolution against communism in Guatemala at the meeting of the Organization of American States in Venezuela. On April 9th, Archbishop Mariano Ariano in Guatemala released a pastoral letter. Liberation theology was not yet the prevailing scene, and church leaders in both the United States and Guatemala were willing and eager to participate in CIA activities. In the early spring of 1954, the agency asked Cardinal Spellman of New York to get in touch with his Guatemalan counterpart, and within days, the CIA began communicating through him with Archbishop Ariano. The pastoral letter on which they collaborated called on Guatemalans to revile communism and to, quote, rise as a single man against this enemy of God and country, unquote. This despite that Arbenz and Arevalo had both loosened past dictatorial restrictions on the Catholic Church. Encouraged by the pastoral letter, activists from the Committee of Anti-Communist University Students, working on CIA orders, created fake pamphlets and mailers from the, quote, Organization of the Militant Godless, unquote, which they claimed was run by the Communist Guatemalan Workers' Party, or PGT. That stoking of anti-communist hate would have disastrous consequences for the country in the future. When you turn a political debate into an ideological crusade, you have never made things better. Later in April, Eisenhower appeared before the American Congress and said that, quote, The Reds are in control, and they are trying to break out of Guatemala to other South American countries, unquote. He was prepping the United States for what would come if the administration ever got a plausible pretext to turn up the heat. On the first day of May, the Voice of Liberation, Voz de la Liberación, went on air, broadcasting across Guatemala and half of the rest of the Caribbean. Atlee Phillips and his exile assistants broadcast a mix of popular entertainers and musical acts, real news, and convincing propaganda. 
Their objective was to win the trust of the largely illiterate populace in advance of a, quote, Orson Welles-type terror broadcast, unquote, once Castillo Armas' invasion began. Fourteen days after the Voice of Liberation began its operations, the Guatemalan government's official station, TGW, went off-air for equipment repairs and would stay off-air for the following two weeks. Unfortunately for the Guatemalan government, that was June 15th, the same day that the Alfem arrived in Puerto Varios with its shipment of Czech weapons, giving the Eisenhower administration all the excuse it needed to begin its sea blockade and set success onto its final stages. The Voice of Liberation made use of the Alfem too, claiming that Arbenz would turn the weapons over to the Guatemalan Workers' Party, or PGT, and dissolve the military. And for two long weeks, the news coming from the Voice of Liberation was all the news that most Guatemalans had. In late May, the anti-communist students, the CEUA, halted all their activities. Half of their numbers had been jailed, and their CIA handlers told the other half to stand down as the next phase of success began. On the 26th of May, an American-made plane with an American pilot flew low over Guatemala City and dropped anti-communist leaflets. The CIA had gotten more than 30 planes of different sizes down to its airfields in Nicaragua and Panama through various channels. In one, a right-wing Miami millionaire used his aircraft company to donate planes to a fake medical institute, which then sold them to CIA shell corporations. The medical institute used the proceeds from the sales to pay the CIA pilots. As for getting the pilots inconspicuously to the airfields, they went to party first in Miami and later in Havana. They intentionally lost all of their money and then came in contact with a mysterious Latin businessman, a CIA contact, who would pay them to fly farm equipment around in Latin America as a cover. A totally good plan that fell apart when, quote, embassy officials had to intervene when suspicious FBI agents in Havana hauled the pilots in for questioning, unquote. As for the efficacy of the leaflets, it wasn't what was printed on them that scared Guatemalans, but that they were dropped at all. The Guatemalan Air Force was tiny and outdated, and the planes making the leaflet runs did so with impunity. Quoting from Kulather, If they had been napalm bombs and not leaflets, we wouldn't be here to talk about it, one Guatemalan editorialist said. Leaflet runs on successive days were widely interpreted as practice bombing runs, end quote. On May 24th, Guatemala's foreign minister, Jorge Torriello, began a series of hurried meetings with Ambassador Pirafoy to try to defuse the situation. On May 27th, Torriello offered to sign a non-aggression treaty with Honduras, precluding any drive to the Panama Canal, which, remember, was what the Eisenhower administration was publicly afraid that Arbenz would do with the weapons from the Alfam. Pirafoy rejected the offer out of hand. On the 1st of June, Torriello offered even more. In January, Eisenhower had mentioned the possibility of forming a neutral commission to hash out the two countries' problems, and Torriello said that his government was now ready to go that route. He added that Arbenz was eager to meet with Eisenhower personally to discuss the situation, and that the Arbenz government would renegotiate the compensation rates they were paying for UFCO land. Those entreaties, despite addressing every issue the U.S. had with Guatemala, fell on deaf ears, because all of the men who could stop success weren't as interested in solving any given Guatemalan problem as they were in seeing if they could take the whole model they had used in Iran and apply it anywhere in the world, sweeping out world leaders at will. Purifoy rejected Torriello's proposal, and the foreign minister ceased to meet with the ambassador. At the beginning of June, the domestic situation in Guatemala was deteriorating under the weight of pressure and propaganda. On the 2nd of June, a non-CIA coup plot came to light, and Guatemalan police imprisoned the conspirators. The Guatemalan military, unhurt by the CIA's desultory bombing runs and as yet untempted by the agencies and Purifoy's bribes, was nonetheless demoralized and convinced that something big was on the way from the United States. On June 3rd, a delegation of senior officers met with Arbenz and asked him to expel all communists from his administration to try to stave off whatever was coming. Arbenz told them that the communists were not a threat and sent them away. You might be asking yourself at this point, 
Well, why wouldn't Arbenz just fire the communists? There weren't that many of them, and he could have kept listening to them if he wanted to. Just get them out for a while for experience's sake. But remember that at this point, Arbenz had already offered the U.S. concessions on a much larger scale. Remember, too, that he was the second of only two presidents following decades of military rule, and letting a group of senior officers direct his government was not a great precedent. And third, the communists had done nothing wrong. They were good-faith players in Guatemala's political system and had been Arbenz's strongest supporters. If I must distance myself from everyone who agrees with me and submit to every American demand in order to be free from American aggression, he might have thought, then what is the benefit? The military did not take his answer well, and on the 5th, a retired chief of staff of the Air Force fled to Nicaragua. He later appeared on the Voice of Liberation and served in Castillo Armas's air wing. On the 8th of June, the worsening picture led the Guatemalan Congress to suspend the Constitution and give Arbenz emergency powers for 30 days. The United States Information Agency, the propaganda arm of the U.S. government, also stepped up its efforts in June. From Kinzer and Schlesinger, quote, The agency shipped more than 100,000 copies of a pamphlet called Chronology of Communism in Guatemala throughout Latin America. 27,000 copies of anti-communist cartoons and posters were also distributed. The USIA also produced three special movies on Guatemala, including one on the Caracas OAS meeting, as well as reels of news footage favorable to the United States for showing free in movie houses in Latin America. The agency persuaded radio stations in friendly countries like Cuba to run hard-hitting commentaries on Guatemala at peak listening hours as the Castillo-Armas invasion neared. An experienced USIA press officer was sent to the American embassy in Honduras to brief selected correspondents on inside accounts of events once the coup began as a way of offsetting anticipated hostile foreign news reports about the invasion. One internal State Department memo reported that the program of smearing Guatemalan maneuvers in advance was proceeding satisfactorily, end quote. On the 13th of June, Castillo Armas moved from his comfortable digs to Tegucigalpa in Honduras and met his men for the first time. On the 15th, Eisenhower had the Dulles brothers, the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of Defense, and some other staff to breakfast to decide on the final go-ahead for the last stage of success. Quoting Eisenhower now, I want all of you to be damn good and sure you succeed. When you commit the flag, you commit it to win. I'm prepared to take any steps that are necessary to see that it succeeds, for if it succeeds, it's the people of Guatemala throwing off the yoke of communism. If it fails, the flag of the United States has failed. End quote. Now, you could read that statement as Eisenhower and company being true believers in what they were doing. But all of those men knew that they were financing a small band of mercenaries led by an even smaller group of exiled aristocrats against a popular democratic regime that had the support of its people and its military. Those are facts they knew. That they could ally those facts with willful ignorance or an ardent ideology does not, I don't think, excuse them either of their actions or of the consequences of those actions. On the next day, the 16th of June, Castillo Armas and his men moved to their staging points on the border in five groups. 198 men gathered at Macueliso, 40 miles south of Puerto Barrios. They would march north to attack the port. In La Florida, 30 miles southwest of Macueliso, 122 men prepared to march 50 miles due west to Zacapa, where the government's largest border garrison was stationed. 200 men, together with Castillo Armas, gathered in two groups, one in Copan, southwest of La Florida, and the other in Nueva Ocotepeque. They would drive north towards Chimicula and Esquipulas and be directly under Castillo Armas' command. A group of 60 crossed the border secretly into El Salvador, moving towards San Cristobal on the border. From there, they would attack Jutiapa, a provincial capital. They would have to keep under cover because the Salvadoran government had withdrawn its support for the operation at the last minute. I'll have a map of the invasion from Kulather's book on the website, and you can check it out there. But as far as the podcast, uh, the southern Guatemalan border runs southwest between the Atlantic and the Pacific coasts at about a 45-degree angle. Occupying the northern three-fifths of that border is Honduras, and El Salvador takes up the rest. 
Castillo Armas's invasion points fell about every 30 miles in a line parallel to the border, and because the border itself was so short, his five groups of men covered it evenly. Though they were small, they would be invading the entire south of Guatemala simultaneously, along a 200-mile front. Before the invasion could even properly start, though, Salvadoran police stopped the group of 60 making for San Cristobal. The police discovered wagons full of weapons and arrested the men. One of the groups that Armas was personally commanding found guards as it approached the border at a formerly deserted crossing. They captured a soldier and murdered a customs official. On June 18th, at 8.20 p.m., Castillo Armas rolled across the border in a station wagon come command car. At the same time, his pilots flew low over Guatemala City, dropping leaflets and buzzing a pro-government rally, delivering a clear message about their capacity to bomb. On the way back, the two crew members of one plane discovered that they had misjudged their remaining fuel and ended up having to ditch their airplane off the coast, where they're picked up by a U.S. Navy vessel, there because of the blockade. Almost always more effective than Armas's troops, on the 19th of June, a CIA plane blew up a railroad station at Gualan, severing the only rail link between the capital and the coast, halfway between Guatemala City and Puerto Varios. That and other planes dropped caches of weapons across the countryside, which the Voice of Liberation claimed were being delivered to an internal fifth column, which was even then rising up to topple the government. But Castillo Armas' troops' progress was less exemplary. By the 20th, two days after crossing the border, Armas had only managed to march the four miles from the border to Esquipulas and capture the town from its local police. The force of 122 headed to meet the garrison at Zacapa instead ran into 30 Guatemalan soldiers commanded by a lieutenant in Gualan along the way. The small Guatemalan contingent routed the invaders in an 18-hour skirmish, leaving only 30 of Armas' troops alive and uncaptured. On the 21st, two more CIA pilots misjudged their fuel and would have to ditch their plane, this time in Mexico. That same day, the northernmost force of 198 made it to Puerto Larios. There, the local police and the dock workers organized themselves into an impromptu militia and again trounced Armas' troops. They captured 20 and ran the rest back to Honduras, where they refused to continue the fight and then dispersed. On the 18th of June, having gotten no mercy from Purifor or Washington, and with things looking worse by the day, Toriello began sending telegrams to Dag Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the United Nations, pleading for him to take action to end the invasion. The international press had already caught on that something was afoot a few days earlier, so Castillo Armas' movements were already global news by the time he rolled over the border. After the battles on the 20th of June, Arbenz declared martial law and mobilized the units of the army in the capital. Toriello went to Purifoy one last time. This conversation appears in a couple of different books I've read, and Toriello keeps to diplomatic language, trying to flatter Purifoy's famous vanity and insisting that because of his influence, he personally could stop the invasion. Toriello knows that the invasion is really an American operation, and that the way Purifoy could stop it is through his boss, John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State. But Toriello sticks to the script, asking for help and insisting that the United States has influence in every country in Latin America. Purifoy, never able to manage grace if he could be an asshole instead, and still personally angry that Arbenz had not made himself an American puppet, replied, quote, Yes, in every country but Guatemala. Unquote. After that sit-down, Toriello sent another more urgent telegram to Secretary General Hammerskjold. In response, he convened the UN Security Council for its first Sunday meeting since it had approved the invasion of Korea. At the time, Henry Cabot Lodge was the United States representative to the UN. Lodge spent the entirety of that Sunday debate trying to refer the issue to the OAS, which John Foster Dulles had shown he could more easily control. When the USSR vetoed the resolution, Cabot Lodge yelled, quote, Stay out of this hemisphere. Don't try to start your plans and conspiracies here. Unquote. Lodge, if you remember, owned a very large personal stake in the United Fruit Company and had lobbied for the company while serving as a senator. 
At that same meeting, France moved to and then passed a resolution of non-intervention in the conflict, which the U.S. let slide since it wasn't publicly intervening anyway. On the 21st, the same day that the police and the dock workers threw the invaders out of Puerto Larios, Torriello sent a third telegram to Hammerskjöld, and at his urging it looked as though Britain and France would support a vote to send an international team of observers to Guatemala. Unfortunately for Torriello and his country, Winston Churchill, then again Prime Minister of Britain, was in Washington. Eisenhower called him in for a meeting and, quote, talked cold turkey to him, unquote. President Eisenhower explained that unless Britain was willing to back American imperialist adventures, the United States would not support Britain in its then interest in Cyprus and future interest in Suez. Accordingly, the British abstained from the vote on observers and the French followed suit, probably thinking about the American assistance they were already receiving in their dirty war in Indochina, what would become Vietnam. All action on the observer resolution died on the 24th of June. Back to the invasion, by the 21st, all of Castillo Armas' forces had either stopped or been decisively defeated by the Guatemalans, so the CIA focused on other elements of their plan. Haney begged for and received two planes to replace the two he lost on the 23rd of June, and the fleet kept ineffectually bombing and leafleting the cities. The major effect of the air war was to demoralize. The planes weren't destroying much of importance because they had old ordnance, bad aim, and had been told not to attack military targets to avoid alienating the high command but to Guatemalans on the ground, they were a constant and much-feared threat. To the military, who recognized the make of the planes and the fact that Castillo Armas couldn't field an air force on his own, the aircraft were a clear sign that the United States military was supporting the coup. Multiplying the effect of the bombings and the invasion far beyond the scope of either was the radio. Armas's troops never stopped being an embarrassment, but the voice of liberation turned his puny forays into a formidable onslaught. The station at the embassy jammed the government station, giving the population the impression of serious disruption. Voz de la Liberación broadcast news bulletins about rebel advances, major engagements, government losses, and a countryside taking up arms with the Liberator. A nation demoralized by months of United States-sponsored propaganda and years of UFCO-backed violence was vulnerable to the War of the World-style picture being painted by the men on the radio. At the same time, the few casualties that the government did sustain, Achimicula, arrived in the capital for treatment, giving its residents a harrowing glimpse of a war they thought was much larger than it was. In some cases intentionally, and in most cases not, the International Press Corps repeated the claims of the Voice of Liberation almost verbatim, reporting that the station was broadcasting from the Guatemalan jungle, and that its story of a major invasion was true. The rest of their copy they got from U.S. Embassy press releases and official communiques from Castillo Armas, all of which together gave the impression that the Guatemalan state was falling apart. While David Atlee Phillips and Liberation Radio worked on the national consciousness, Pirafoy kept working on the military. And in those last days in June, he started making headway, holding clandestine meetings with Colonel Carlos Enrique Diaz, the chief of staff of the armed forces, sometimes alone and sometimes with other officers in attendance. Colonel Diaz began negotiating because the U.S. had the military much more nervous than the Arbenz administration or even the general population. Because the officer corps knew what was actually happening in the front and the actual effectiveness both of Armas's men and of his pilots, it wasn't the invasion or the radio that frightened them, but what they implied. They, unlike Arbenz and Torriello, had no faith that the UN would or could hold Eisenhower back if he wanted to commit the American military to an attack. And John Foster Dulles's maneuvering at the March meeting of the OAS had made it clear to them, at least, that Eisenhower was considering armed intervention. Remember that the Guatemalan military had ties to the U.S. military for decades. They'd trained with the Americans, they'd seen what the U.S. military could do, and what's more, they'd seen what U.S. Marines had already done during the 19th and 20th centuries. That is, invade and invade hard. A member of the Communist Party went to check on the barracks at Zacapa and found that despite the army's string of victories, the officers there appeared demoralized and unwilling to fight. 
He reported that information to Arbenz, who ordered Colonel Diaz to turn over some of the weapons from the Alchem to the PGT, the Guatemalan Workers' Party, and to labor unions in the capital. Arevalo had done the same thing to put down a military insurrection after Arana's death, and even a few hundred men-at-arms would have been able to repel Castillo Armas' entire force. Diaz, already in too deep with Purifoy, refused to turn them over. Quoting now from a diplomatic cable in which Purifoy described a conversation with Diaz, Colonel Diaz said he knew that and was prepared to guarantee in the name of the army that the Communist Party would be outlawed and its leaders exiled. I said this was fine, but that the government had long known this, and neither government nor army had ever acted. How could I be sure army would be able to carry out its decision? After some hesitation, Diaz agreed this was the crucial question. Solution designed by army officers was that he should assume presidency. I asked whether he had attempted any direct arrangement with Castillo Armas. He replied in strongest terms, and was strongly seconded by others, that direct negotiations with Castillo Armas were out of the question. They would rather die than talk to him. Diaz said Castillo Armas would never govern Guatemala after massacres his air forces caused. He might have some supporters in the army before, but no longer. I stressed again that I could neither speak for Castillo nor commit my government, but that if Diaz assumed power and ousted the communists, I would strongly recommend that U.S. attempt to bring about ceasefire until arrangement could be made. Once again, Diaz and his colleagues insisted that truce, or at least a cessation of air raids, would be essential before they could act against Arbenz. I simply replied that when I knew Diaz was in control, I would recommend a ceasefire. End quote. Arbenz, in light of Diaz's insubordination with the weapons, sent another officer out to check the attitudes of his commanders in the field. Quoted in Kulather, his reply was that, quote, The officers think that the Americans are threatening Guatemala just because of you and your communist friends. If you don't resign, the army will march on the capital to depose you, end quote. So for the Guatemalan army, in the end, it wasn't any of the cleverer elements of Operation Success, really, but the ever-credible threat that we might just land the Marines. Quoting from another cable from Purifoy about Colonel Diaz, he said then, Now comes the tough problem. Who is going to bell the cat? Who is going to tell Jacobo? But with a moment's hesitation, he made the decision. Colonel Sanchez will visit all garrisons and announce that I have assumed the presidency. Colonel Hiron will inform the Air Force. I will go to the palace with Barineo and Sarti, and we will tell Jacobo. After some other talk, Diaz said, Arbenz may answer in two ways. He will either say yes, or he will say this is insubordination, and call the guard. In the latter case, we will not emerge from the palace. End quote. On the 26th of June, Diaz went to the presidential palace and delivered his message to the president. Arbenz would step down in favor of Diaz. Diaz, for his part, would preserve the Constitution, work towards elections, and continue Arbenz's slate of reforms. Arbenz, abandoned by everyone but the PGT, and convinced that the United States would apparently do anything to unseat a government which involved the PGT, gave in. The future of Guatemala lies at the disposal of the Guatemalan people themselves. It lies also at the disposal of leaders loyal to Guatemala who have not treasonably become the agents of an alien despotism which sought to use Guatemala for its own evil ends. The events of recent months and days add a new and glorious chapter to the already great tradition of the American states. From the last part of Arbenz's resignation speech, in which he laid the invasion at the feet of the United States and the UFCO, quote, I have decided to quit power to turn the executive over to Carlos Enrique Diaz, chief of the armed forces. All social progress will go on. I believe that democratic political organizations and all other popular organizations should give him full support. I ask this as my last act as a governing man. In my heart, I do not think I am making a mistake. Only the future can say. 
Let peace be restored. Let the gains be kept. With the satisfaction of having done my duty, I say long live the October Revolution, and long live Guatemala. Unquote. For me, it's hard to see Arbenz at fault, and even harder to see what in the long run he could have done. But the gains would not be kept, and the peace would not be restored. After Arbenz spoke, Diaz followed with a speech that explained his agreement with the former president, an agreement that described a different Guatemala than the autocratic dictatorship the CIA had envisioned. So that night, the CIA station chief and Time Magazine's Paris bureau chief, who had arrived in Guatemala to help write a new constitution, met with Diaz and set him straight. Time's man, Eno Habing, is quoted in Kinzer and Schlesinger as saying to Diaz, Colonel, you're just not convenient for the requirements of American foreign policy. There is diplomacy, and then there is reality. Our ambassador represents diplomacy. I represent reality. And the reality is that we don't want you. End quote. Times man, the CIA man, and Purifoy worked together over the next two weeks to install five different military juntas in the presidential palace, each one more receptive to the demands. The details of those machinations aren't too important, and even I don't think they're interesting, but suffice to say that by July 3rd, Castillo Armas was in Guatemala City as part of a five-man junta, none of whose members were Colonel Diaz. In the next five days, Armas and the CIA paid large sums to the other men of the junta, and on July 8th, they elected Castillo Armas provisional president, bringing Operation Success to a close just over the seven-month mark. Colonel Monson, another member of that last junta, said that their only post-coup problem was finding thousands of jail cells to hold the people that they were rounding up. From Kulather's CIA history on the denouement, quote, Castillo Armas's regime proved embarrassingly inept. Its repressive and corrupt policies soon polarized Guatemala and provoked a renewed civil conflict, end quote. The United States government officially recognized the new Guatemalan government on the 13th of July. On the 20th, Armas disenfranchised illiterates, essentially returning the right to vote to the finquero aristocracy. On the 21st, he canceled the agrarian reform, and his police began brutally evicting 100,000 peasant families from their new parcels of land. On August 10th, Armas outlawed political parties, unions, and peasant organizations. On the 10th of October, he held a plebiscite to have his presidency confirmed by the people. He returned the right to vote to illiterates for that one day. The voters, who had to enter their choice verbally, confirmed his presidency. By April 1955, as a measurement of his management of the Guatemalan economy, Armas had let foreign currency reserves fall from $42 million in January 1954 to $3.4 million. Quoting Schlesinger and Kinzer again, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles expressed no displeasure at Armas's actions, end quote. What Dulles was worried about was that 700 members of Arbenz's government and of the PGT had taken refuge in other Latin American embassies, a position from which, he was convinced, they would mount a counter-revolution. They never did, but another refugee from Arbenz's Guatemala was Ernesto Che Guevara, who had ended up in Guatemala after the trip in the Motorcycle Diaries. Che had been a supporter of Arbenz and his policies, and after June 26th, he fled to Mexico City, which is where he met Fidel Castro. Kinzer quotes his wife, Hilda Gadea, as saying, It was Guatemala which finally convinced him of the necessity for armed struggle and for taking the initiative against imperialism. By the time he left, he was sure of this, unquote. Look hard enough, and there's almost no enemy the U.S. didn't create for itself. At the debriefing meeting with the president, Eisenhower congratulated all the CIA men involved in the operation. He took Alan Dulles by the hand and said to all of them, quote, Thanks to all of you, you've averted the Soviet beachhead in our hemisphere, end quote. Many of the men from success would go on to run the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion, largely with the same game plan. In 1955, having done the company a great favor, Undersecretary of State William Beadle Smith finally secured a spot on the UFCO's board of directors. 
John Clement's associates, which had written a fallacious report for the UFCO about Guatemala, was retained by Castillo Armas as a personal propaganda firm for $8,000 a month. When John Clements died, the Hearst Corporation, which owned his company, burned his files. As for the UFCO itself, Dulles made sure that Purifoy explained to Castillo Armas the kind of terms the company would be receiving in the new Guatemala. Purifoy, after speaking with Armas, let Dulles know that the UFCO would not need to worry about, quote, technicalities like ratification by Congress, unquote, and that the company could deal directly with Armas, which it did, returning to it all expropriated territory and reducing its taxes. At almost the same time, the U.S. Justice Department opened an investigation of the UFCO that had been pending for years. Justice ended up suing United Fruit under the Antitrust Act, and all of UFCO's Guatemalan operations were shut down by the 1960s. From Kinzer and Schlesinger, quote, Under the presidency of a financial wheeler-dealer, Eli Black, the company merged with a conglomerate called United Brands. As the financial climate darkened in the 1970s, Black saw his $2 billion empire gradually disintegrate before his eyes. On the morning of February 3, 1975, he walked to his corner office on the 44th floor of the Pan Am building in New York, smashed a hole in the quarter-inch thick window, and jumped to his death. End quote. From Kulather's history, two years later, two New York real estate developers bought the company and managed to turn a profit. In 1984, United Brands was purchased by a Cincinnati-based insurance holding company, American Financial Corporation, which owns it today. Thanks to Americans' changing diets, banana importing has once again become profitable, and United's Chiquita Banana brand has recaptured a majority share of the market. The company's tropical radio division, which once employed the Salama conspirators, ventured into the cellular telephone business in the early 1980s and now dominates the mobile phone business in 20 Latin American cities. End quote. Arbenz, after his speech, walked out of the presidential palace and into the Mexican embassy. From there, he moved with his wife and three children to Mexico City, where he was in constant danger. Next, he went to Switzerland, then Paris, then Prague, where he was unwelcome. Moscow took him in after the Czechs, and from there he moved to Uruguay, which only allowed him residence on the condition that he have no public life. After the revolution in 1960, Fidel Castro invited him to Cuba. In 1965, his oldest daughter and his favorite, Aravea, killed herself in Colombia, in Bogota. Still emotionally crushed, he moved to Mexico again in 1970, and in 1971 he was found dead in his bathtub, more or less forgotten, and very aware that the situation in his country had gotten worse almost by the day since he left Diaz in the palace on June 27, 1954. An anonymous State Department official quoted in Foreign Policy ten years after his death said, quote, What we'd give to have an Arbenz now. We are going to have to invent one but all the candidates are dead, unquote. The State Department shuffled all of the embassy staff out of Guatemala shortly after the coup. They sent Purifoy to Thailand, where he could be close if things heated up in French Indochina. On the 18th of August, 1955, he was driving his powder blue Thunderbird outside of Bangkok. He tried to pass a trailer truck at speed on a narrow bridge and crashed, killing himself and his son. Castillo Armas continued ruling Guatemala for three years and 19 days. On July 27, 1957, a palace guard named Romeo Vasquez Sanchez shot him dead on his way to dinner. General José Miguel Ramón Idigoras Fuentes, who had been waiting patiently in the wings since he lost the presidential election to Arbenz in 1950, flew into the country and assumed control, ushering in the 59-year-and-counting epilogue to America's experiment in regime change in Guatemala. So that's our first episode. 
Safe for Democracy is written, edited, and produced by me, Jonathan Coombs, and you can find episodes online on iTunes or on our website, safefordemocracy.com. Special credit goes to the two books I relied on most heavily, The Secret History by Nick Kulather and The Story of the Coup by Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer. You can find their books and all the other sources I used in the bibliography for this show on the website. I'd also like to credit Sean Beyer for doing all the graphic design work on the website. Next time, I'll be going through the long and bloody aftermath of Operation Success, which takes us up to the present day. Until then, this has been Jonathan Coombs, and safe for democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.